0: The very word secrecy is repugnant
1: in a free and open society. Politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. Hey everybody, welcome back to Chopper Profits, I'm Mike, I'm your host and today I have the pleasure of speaking with someone who I've wanted to have an interview with for a while and uh, our schedules just didn't seem to meet, match up. Uh, he travels a lot, he's, he's a very busy man, um, and uh, so I'm really, really stoked to have him on the show today. Uh, please welcome Tyler Malenke from Low Lowbrow Customs.
0: Hey Mike, how's it going?
1: It's going good, man. Um, I'm so stoked that we were able to catch up. We've done a little bit of chatting, you know, off on the side before this interview and um, I'm just happy that uh, we get a chance to sit down and I can pick your brain a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So, um, you know, this is kind of a standard question for, for this uh, podcast or for this webcast. And uh, it's one that takes people back to their childhood and, and kind of starts at the, at the youngest that they can remember, um, you know, being a kid growing up and, and, it really tells a lot about the formation of a person in their life, especially, you know, from a childhood standpoint. So, um, so tell us a little bit about how you grew up and where you grew up and what your life was like as a kid.
0: Sure. Um, I don't know, more or less, it's pretty, uh, pretty average, I guess. Um, born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, my parents split when I was like a year old. And so I was raised by my stepdad and my mother, uh, and my dad was Marine, uh, career Marine. My mom was a nurse. Uh, and my dad was around. I had regular contact with him uh, since I can remember. Uh, then he moved to Los Angeles. Actually, he moved to Oxnard up near Ventura when I was maybe five or six. Um, and my brother would go out there every summer for a couple weeks. So since I can remember, I've been um, traveling at least around the U.S. Uh, he lived on a sailboat out there for 12 years or so. So it was Super cool as a kid to go visit and stand on a boat and play with sea anemones over the edge of a dock and all that kind of stuff because we're right. from there's no sea anemones. <laughs> <you> know, <laughs> wave. Um, but yeah, uh, my brother who uh, works with me, a huge part of Lowbrow, um, Kyle, uh, and I uh, grew up um, just like regular, I don't know, just total regular nuclear family um, with. You know, blue collar parents, uh, just kind of a regular deal. Um, I don't know, I was a nerd, uh, and so was my brother. I was really into computers and uh, messing around outdoors, things like that. Uh, An interesting thing, both of us were definitely not allowed to ride motorized vehicles when we were (laughs) kids or teenagers, uh, forbade by my mother, the nurse who had. You know, was a home healthcare nurse and took care of a lot of people with uh, quadriplegics or paraplegics from things right. like diving into shallow pools or motorcycle wrecks. So, um, right. I would ride three-wheelers with my friend Gabe, uh, you know, unbeknownst to my mother at uh, his uncle's farms up in Toledo. So, we'd go up there and ride three-wheelers all day and shoot guns with his uncle and have a lot of fun. Uh, we built a mini bike, you know, when we are like 12 or 13, messed around with things like that. Um, but I... Pretty much actually didn't have much of that in my life until I uh, moved out at, at 18 and bought a motorcycle.
1: So, okay. so, so it's safe to say that there were no gun injuries that you can remember, no three-wheeler major yeah, uh, accidents that you can remember. I had a
0: couple three-wheeler injuries, for sure, because they don't make them anymore for a reason. prone uh,
1: right,
0: right. to rolling over. Uh, yeah, I had a couple racing uh, my buddy's grandpa up in Toledo. His grandpa was in a car. And I was on a farm access road, and we got big swales on each side. And uh, I remember just going for broke and kind of drifting and getting pulled right down into a swale. So my front tire was down in the ditch, and I hit a rock or something and just went end over end. And uh, I think I smashed my nose in and stuff like that, but I was okay. I, had, I think I had an open face helmet on or something. And then um, <laughs> that was generally that was fine. And then um, trying to jump a lake in the woods on a three-wheeler <laughs> and uh, I was probably 13 and wow. landing and rolling it instantly and hurting my ankle and not uh, wanting to tell my mom and uh, limping around for a couple of days until I figured I should go to the hospital. And it ended up just being a bad sprain, but I thought it might be rude, But so minor okay. stuff, you know, um, no, no life changing accidents.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so was it, uh, you said your mom was a, a like an in-home uh, health care? Yeah,
0: yeah when I was younger she was a home health care nurse so she would go to people's houses and apartments and help you know people who uh, who needed it uh and then later um ended up being more into like the uh I don't know management end of stuff for health care so like working at working with doctors and stuff I don't honestly know the exact details but
1: yeah um, there's, I think there's probably better money in that, and it's probably a little less traumatizing. Even, I mean, d- I, yeah. I'm not saying she did one or the other for any of those reasons, but uh, I can imagine. It's a tough while, well, you know,
0: It takes a right kind of person, yeah. to help people like that. So,
1: right. Yeah. So, was there? What would you say was the age where you um, maybe made that transition to? Uh, to two wheels, uh, and if that came later, then we'll back up and maybe cover some other ground. But
0: um, uh, yeah, you know that really kind of—I sort of kind of just got interested in motorcycles, like thinking about a street bike. Honestly, when I was probably seventeen, eighteen, um, and I just had seen an, a vintage Triumph and thought it looked really freaking cool, and uh you know, basically saved up some money and started looking around, uh, went. I don't even remember where, somewhere in Ohio, went and bought a 1970 uh, TR6, but with a, a 77 TR7 motor in it, which is a 750 cc five-speed. That uh, mm-hmm. the guy I bought from his dad dirt tracked it, so it was a it was converted to a right-hand shift. Um, it was just a badass bike, white with a red stripe, um, beat up. You know, I think I bought it for like 1,700 bucks. Went with my I had a beat-up work van. Uh, and I went to buy it with no tie downs or no rope or anything because I was at now you I had no fucking clue how to haul a motorcycle. <laughs> right. uh, you know, that dude who I've sold bikes to since. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> uh, went and got a bike. um it, up until that time, my brother and my biological dad are total gearheads into hot rods and old cars and stuff forever. I never gave a shit, uh, honestly, about any of that um, to their chagrin. Um, but. <laughs> Uh, you know, honestly, motorcycles, vintage motorcycles turned me into a mechanic for sure because I bought a bike, didn't know how to do anything mechanically. Uh, and within, you know, a year, I was rebuilding the motor and started chopping it shortly after that uh, and then just got in super deep, you know. Um, but I didn't even know how to, I'd never ridden a street bike. Uh, I think about it now, and it's funny, uh, I lived on a pretty busy street in mm-hmm. a suburb of Cleveland called Parma, and okay. uh, I couldn't get the bike started because it ran like shit, so I bump started down the driveway right into traffic, and that's <laughs> just I learned to ride a motorcycle. I think about it now, I think it's pretty funny because it's, it's totally not a good idea, you know? Right. <laughs> uh, I just bump started down the hill of my driveway into traffic, and then just like take off and figure it out on the fly, uh, and I think I just picked it right up, and there's no problem, so...
1: That's awesome. So you learned to ride and race at the same time.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. sure.
1: That's awesome. Well, um,
0: I was always comfortable on a bike. Um, I've never really gotten – I've laid a couple bikes down, but I've never really been uh, fucked up, so I feel like I have not yet learned the fear. So <laughs> I, I ride fast, and I take chances and have fun. That's why I ride bikes, just to get excited and be a little scared.
1: yeah. Well and I think uh, I think that's something that resonates across the board with anybody who rides or you know gosh it, replace that with uh, whatever you know sport you know some sure. people like to climb and uh, climb rocks with no ropes and things like that so um tell us let's back up a little bit um, how old are you and um, what's your what's your current situation as far as like your we obviously know where you work, but tell us a little bit about that situation. But but start with how old you are, because I think that, that sometimes plays into uh, fear or the realization of our mortality.
0: Sure, sure. Uh, I just turned 35 last month.
1: Okay. Uh, and, Happy uh, belated birthday, by the way.
0: Yep, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, brief history, I guess. I don't know. I started lowbrow, uh, I would have been 23, 24-ish maybe because um, Lowbrow has been in business coming up on 12 years now um, and it was just kind of like something to do using my skills with uh, my computer skills um, I I had a uh, sign company I started when I was 19 and it was just me, I was just self-employed basically but I did graphic design I did uh, website design, HTML coding like in the you know, like, 98, I started doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then i lettered letter, like, semi-trucks and work vans and shop windows and make banners and any sort of sign you can think of. Um, so I had a lot of skills with screen printing and vinyl decals as well as graphic design and web design. So I had the, the toolkit uh, plus the desire to be uh, heavily involved with motorcycles and custom customizing bikes and stuff. So, like, um, I was ordering – I was my own customer, so I was trying to buy parts from people. And find information online, and I would wonder if the parts I ordered would ever show up. If they would, <laughs> uh, I couldn't find, you know, you couldn't in 2002, 2003. It, it's not that long ago, but it's kind of hard to remember what it was like then because there just wasn't the online resources right now. Um, right. I was a avid member of the Yahoo uh, forum, Triumph Choppers, which is actually where I met uh, Big Truth from Chop Ahead probably in the early 2000s. Uh, we're still friends and, and do business together, and you know always are glad to see each other. But th- that's like how you get information. You know, basically posting on forums, asking questions from the other 100 dudes around the United States who give a crap about Triumph Choppers. Right,
1: you know, right, else, right. You
0: know, Maybe less than 100, people, <laughs> you know. Uh, right. But anyway, so I I uh, decided to make this website to basically sell some stickers, uh, sell some T-shirts I designed and get some motorcycle money together. Uh, I love, love to, and still love to travel, and get tattooed, and that's basically what I did was, uh, it was just mad money, you know? i would be like weekends and evenings after my normal job, uh, I would work on the website, try and, you know, I'd draw new shirt designs, uh, find new stuff to carry, like Dice Magazine when it first started out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think, that was for sure one of the magazines I carried. I don't even remember what else was around at that time. Um, i go to Hot Rod shows because there was no bike shows and set out a little tiny four-foot folding table or six-foot folding table with, like, two T-shirts and four stickers and, like, Dice Magazine on it. And, right. uh, and that's what my vending setup was. I had a 65 Econoline van that I had all that stuff loaded in. And so I would drive around and go to shows and do little vending and stuff. Um,
1: that and sounds, it, very, it sounds very similar to, uh, you know, bands that are just starting off. Uh, you know, showing up at a show that they were invited to—they don't get yeah. paid for it, or they no, maybe even they had to pay to be on it.
0: Made fifty bucks on that weekend, man. You know, I was jazzed because I remember getting my first order for fifteen dollars for like some stickers, and was—I was stoked. Um, right. I mean, yeah, honestly, it's just a, a total bootstrap. Like I was broke as shit, and just you know, just kind of hustled. So
1: yeah. Well, so let's talk a little bit about um, where lowbrow has taken you, um, and, and I, I say that, but I also, I guess, in parentheses, parentheses would say where you probably would have gone anyway because you have that, um, that tenacious. It seems like you have a tenacious drive. Uh, not, I don't want to say for success, but a tenacious drive to succeed in whatever you're focusing on. Some people yep. call that passion. So where, where would you attribute uh, lowbrow? kind of giving you um a path to uh what, what would you attribute to lowbrow um in um, that in that scenario that um makes sense
0: yeah yeah um well it was like for instance what i never i never have had nor do i now have a goal for lowbrow or an end game like I have no plans to sell my company. I don't have some set figure of money or orders to sell or anything. I've got no, like, I really have no goal, which honestly in business is probably not (laughs) the best thing to do. Um, But I just, uh, you know, just have fun. Uh, Basically, if I'm having fun and I'm excited every day, that's what I want to do. And uh, I have focused for years to, build my company, and also my lifestyle to be what I want it to be, which is um, I want to answer to no one. You know, I want to do what I want to do. I want to go where I want to go because I feel like life is extremely short, and I don't want to waste any time uh, you know, fucking around, essentially. Right. So that's, that's why I, I've been self-employed since I was 19. Um, I actually tattooed my hand. I was already decently tattooed, but... I tattooed my hands at 19 as a, uh, a job stopper. Basically, I wanted to ensure, with my skills of like programming, graphic design, that I didn't, uh, you know, sell out to myself and get a job making an easy <laughs> salary somewhere, but doing something that I didn't want to do. So I decided right. to kind of fuck myself. Potentially, <laughs> you know, <laughs> My were super bummed because I thought I was going to be homeless for sure. Right. Um, uh, but it gave me, you know, it just kind of, it just kind of, I don't know, took out some options because at that point, uh, in the late '90s, it was also very different. Not like it was that long yeah. ago or that I'm that old, but I got right. fired from fast food jobs in the '90s for having yeah. piercings and tattoos. You know, so. Now you go to Chipotle for sure you have to have stretched ears and tattoos. Right. <laughs> Good um, example. I got, I got fired from McDonald's, you know? So uh, yeah. it, it, I don't know. So it's I guess it's just a change. But I just I've always wanted to uh, make my own way. And uh, I like I guess what you were alluding to before is I'm driven and focused, and whether it was lowbrow or I mean honestly, it doesn't matter what it is, like you can name a topic. And I can get totally interested in it. <laughs> like I don't yeah. sit around. I don't watch TV. Um, I get interest. I'm interested in at any given time four or five things. I get super deep into it. Um, yeah. Usually, when I get to a high enough level of something, um, like I start losing interest in it. Maybe and I move to something else. And with motorcycles, that's just never ending. So it's it just hasn't right. because you can. There's literally no end to uh, fabrication skill. Uh, you know, mechanical ability, riding ability and plus i'm a business nerd and i like business and it's a perfect yeah. profession because it's my passion and hobby as well as my livelihood.
1: So. that and you know some people would call that uh ocd or maybe even yeah, uh, low, low spectrum low spectrum aspergers or something but yeah. I, the reason why i'm smiling is because i totally get it. I'm, yeah. <laughs> i i'm very similar and i've talked to, you know, a few people obviously in this community that uh, are the same way, you know, not, yeah. maybe not in the same exact manner, but they have, they all have that, uh, that same streak of, you know, passion and sure. they go far enough to where they understand where they feel uh, not, maybe not have mastered it, but to a certain level. Like 80% they, is kind of what I
0: figure, you know, if yeah. I'm in the top 20% or 10% or something of knowledge or of ability, yeah, usually that's pretty attainable. And then when you want to be in the top 95, you know, the top 5% or something, that's going to take, 10 times as much as much work and commitment and unless right. it's a true passion and something which I have true passions and callings and everything else um, but if it's not something I want to put the next three years of my life into you know it might be something that I just uh, fall out of a little or whatever
1: but right um, speaking of which um let's talk about racing a little bit sure. why, don't you, why don't you give us uh just a, a kind of a quick background or history of how you got interested in it or Was it something you were even interested in or you just kind of fell into?
0: I felt, I kind of fell into it. I wouldn't say, well, I wouldn't say I fell into it. Um, My, uh, I I went from chopper, like being into choppers and custom bikes um, into the realm. Like from there, uh, I I basically got into racing and stock bikes. And basically the more I know about bikes, the longer I've been in the industry and just uh, an aficionado of it. I just, you know, kind of naturally get into all aspects of it. Um, I used to pretty regular go out to uh, Coima uh, and visit Wes, white from four to cycle mm-hmm. and spend like a week sleeping on his couch and then kind of like hanging around at the shop, um, smoking cigarettes <laughs> and we're talking <laughs> about bikes. I don't smoke, but that's kind of what we did and uh, talking about bikes. And, um, you know, he uh, was racing at that point. This was probably like 07, 08, 09, and he okay. was racing um, a few years probably at that point uh, a nineteen fifties Triumph five hundred chasing a record at the Salt Flats, okay. and uh, he was so enthusiastic when he was talking about it. Like in one trip in particular, I had a fifties Triumph pre unit at home that I was building a chopper out of at that time. And It was a a, a narrow Walsall banana tank, and it was a rigid. It was a swing arm. Uh, pre-unit frame with a, a hardtail that was extended and it was super narrow. And I had Akron Morad, uh, flanged alloy wheels all laced up. It was basically, I was building to be a chopper, but then I was like, oh, shit, this is the perfect bare bones for a race project, you know? Right. So I uh, went home from that trip, that one particular trip, and uh, decided to just change direction and build a race bike and, uh, you know, race at Bonneville that year, which my first year was 2010. So it was probably 2009, uh, hmm. that, that particular trip to LA changed my, uh, you know, my direction on that. Um, and basically, I mean, I don't know pretty much if anyone who does racing of any sort or especially, I don't know, especially it seems like the salt flats and land speed. Once I, uh, went out there and raced once, it was just, uh, you know, it's just something I've had to do again and again. Yeah. Uh, it's just a blast. I mean, it's Deerhead paradise for a week. It's like getting up at five in the morning, going out on this, you know, the soft left are gorgeous, every vehicle there, car, or bike, I would describe as like the coolest fill in the blank you've ever seen, but it's yeah. 500 of them, you know? So, sure. and all the people surrounding those vehicles are really interesting. They're driven. They're weirdos. They're freaking odd. They're I mean, they're from all walks of life, and it's just like, it's just a super good mix of people. It's not like the frickin' uh, local bike night, you know what I mean? It's just right. like, right. I don't know, it's like, it's got a good buzz of energy. Uh, you know, you race, you frickin' break stuff, you fix it, you're with your buddies who are crewing, you know, cracking jokes, you know, just work hard all day, have fun, race, get drunk, sleep five hours, and do this and do it again <laughs> for <about> a lot of weeks. <laughs> Um, so, it
1: sounds like it sounds like some of the uh, festivals for, you know, some of the top festivals for musicians out there.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a blast. And uh, honestly, it's just the uh, culmination of like for me working in my home garage for mm-hmm. endless hours, typically at night when my little girl was a baby or real little and sleeping, um, you know, just tons of time spent taking crap. I found it a swap meet like $50 crankcases mm-hmm. and uh, tubing and you know, sheet aluminum, and then making something that will propel me at 150 miles an hour um, down. flats is extremely pleasing, you know, Um, especially when I look at, you know, late model bikes and uh, with, you know, Harley's with twice the displacement or or three times the displacement, and they're they're not even going that much faster than I am. My bike's 50 years older, you know, so uh, that's what I like is taking something old and slow that should not go fast, making go fast. Yeah. Get um, a Hayabusa, but it's just not fun. I mean, it would be fun, <laughs> but it's not, it's a different kind of fun. You know?
1: Yeah. You, you don't have the pleasure of uh, taking something that's older, probably go as fast as you're going to try and make it, and then building it yourself. And then, like you said, propel yourself down these, you know, sure. salt flats. I
0: mean, I'd love to, you know, I'd love to ride a Hayabusa or, uh, you know, whatever fill in the blank super fast bike down the salt. Um, and it would be fun and exhilarating, but it would not feel the same. Like, I'll do that right now. I mean, I will get on. You know, it's like no big deal. It's not mental crap or anything. I'll just go do that. That sounds fun. Let's do it. But when it comes down to some old bike that's that I built and that's, you know, everything's handmade and it's exciting when you're doing 150, it, I feel like I'm doing 300. You know what I mean? That's right. I'm waiting for the motor to blow. I'm looking at all, everything, hoping everything you know, stays together with vibration and all that. Um, So yeah, it's just exciting. It's just a calculated risk, but it's super fun.
1: Sure. I mean, that's everything in life, right? You count the cost and you do what you can to prepare and you you do damage control on the things that you can't control. Yeah. um, Tell, tell us a little bit about maybe your influences in racing. I know some people do, some people have these great, like, well, I remember Joe Smith from 1920 who raced, blah, blah, blah. But tell us maybe a little bit about those people who have kind of inspired you maybe other than obviously Wes, who seems sure. like yeah, that, the weekend or that conversation really changed the direction of your life. Sure.
0: Um, when it comes to my dual engine bike, there's a, a few guys. I mean, there's actually a series of guys whose names I don't even know because I'm just mm-hmm. not that privy, uh, to the history on some of that stuff. Um, but Boris Murray is an old drag racer at a dual engine triumph. He just passed away actually this last year, but, um mm-hmm. uh, his dual engine triumph who's running uh, nitro and quarter mile and was, you know, doing 180 miles an hour consistently His fastest bike in the world for, I think four years. And there's a real famous photo of him at the uh, Bowling green drag strip with his front tire in the air and just, you know, an eighth mile of smoke behind him. You know, I thought he was the baddest motherfucker I've ever seen, you know? So (laughs) to me, that guy rules. And that's honestly like, that's why I went like, these guys could could build these bikes, you know, and the you know, why can't I, I've got, I've got a TIG welder, you know, I've got a lathe, I've got, uh, you know, friends who are smarter and better than me if there's something I can't do, you know? So I figured guys who are building dual engine bikes, literally like on the dirt floor in their barn and really agricultural fabrication ability. So why can't I just make something and and go race it? Um, and that's exactly what my inspiration was saying, Fuck so, okay, it, these guys did it, you know, why can't I? Um yeah. and, you know, just made it happen. I just thought it was just cool, you know, as far as doing yeah. race bike I just thought it was kind of ridiculous and uh, and neat and there's just not I mean there's there's just very few in the world. So I thought it'd be cool to to add one more to the ranks.
1: So let's step down into the maybe the gearhead side of, of this interview. Which I rarely do because um I you know this this interviews or these interviews really focus on the people but yeah. um given the fact that you have built a dual engine race bike yeah. what what's the benefit of having you know two motors in one let's say in this case in one bike i mean i would yeah. think that you would have more uh more torque but what about did i lose you
0: Oh, oh yeah,
1: sorry, lost that last. <laughs> okay. Sorry. I, I was sitting there, I was listening, no nothing, no response, silence, and the camera was still on me and I thought, uh oh. <laughs> uh this is new for us, by the way. So for all of you who have been watching the past uh video interviews, you know, much like Tyler said, I get passionate about something. I run the gamut of uh you know reading about it and researching stuff, and I've tried just about everything I could think of. And this is uh, this what we 're doing right now using Google Hangouts to record this interview um, you know works well, especially for like Tyler is in his house in ohio and i 'm here in Southern California, so it allows us to be able to conduct an interview um, as if we 're sitting right across the, the table from one another but you have the technology um, limits which uh, shouldn't we shouldn 't have nowadays but we do so if you if we drop each other, you hear those little goofs that 's just life. Mm.
0: So, uh, I, I think I got the the most of that question there as far as the uh, the benefit of the, the dual motors. Um, well, for one, like for Bonneville for land speed racing, you add the displacement, right? So, like I've got two six hundred and fifty motors of thirteen hundred cc, so I'm running against thirteen fifty cc class bikes and uh, vintage, which is pre nineteen fifty six at Bonneville. So mm-hmm. it's like uh, you know Indians. And uh, freaking panheads and knuckleheads, so okay. um, the, the triumphs uh, just outperform those bikes when you go, uh, you know, cubic centimeter to cubic centimeter. So mm-hmm. uh, basically, it was a way for me to just take motors that I uh, have an affinity for and know very well, and compete with uh, Harley's, which I love Harley's, but I also love to smoke the records uh, because everyone loves Harley so much, like. So You know, it's fun to kind of step on them a bit, Um, you know, step my nose at them. Um, (laughs) Like a tandem bicycle. So you could have, for instance, you build, like I did, two motors exactly the same. Mm -hmm. But especially when you're talking about parts that are 60 years old and such, you're never going to have two that perform exactly flawlessly the same, It just will never happen. Uh, But imagine like an adult and a child riding a tandem bicycle. The kid can still help even if they're not the same strength uh they're not just along for the ride so um with my dual engine setup you know a single engine bike say you can do 130 you're not going to add another 100 miles an hour ride in a second motor because you have drag and you have a, a loss because those motors are mechanically linked and everything else um and also uh, just because it comes down to tuning and experience i've been racing that bike a few years but i get so you know i run it a dozen times a year meaning a, a, actually ride it 12 times a year if i'm lucky so i only can get so much testing done in, in mm-hmm. time frame so i might be able to get more out of it than i am but right now i've run say 153 or 154 miles an hour um, mm-hmm. so that second motor uh you know is, is giving me you know another 30 miles an hour or whatever as it is now and that should increase i should get into the 170s uh, I believe on gasoline. I'm still running just pump gas. Okay. Uh, and then if I get into, uh, which I plan uh, nitro or nitrous, uh, I, you know, my real goals, I want to go as fast as I can add body work onto that thing. And, uh, you know, I'm getting close to touching 200 uh, potentially on that. Wow. And that's what I like. Why it. it's just ridiculous, you know? Yeah. So,
1: so I want to do it. That's really intense. I mean, anybody who's ever been, you know, over hundred miles an hour, um, and, and I can imagine that it just, it's exponential from there, especially regarding tunnel vision and things like that. But just the physics of going over a hundred miles an hour, it, uh, it's an experience I've done it. I've only been, and I'm not saying this as a proud moment, but I've only gone about 150 150- I had when I was about 18 and yeah. that was intense. It was pretty intense. Mind yeah. you, I it, was on a uh, freeway. Cool. So, right. But, yeah, it's, it's got to be intense. What, what's that experience like for you? I mean, it, nearing that 200 mark.
0: Uh, well, I'm, now, I'm nowhere nearing it yet. I'm only in the 150s, and that 200 is a million miles away in the, <laughs> when it comes to land speed racing. But, um, honestly, the fast, like, you know, I had a big jump a couple years ago from where I'd run, like, 130 the first year I campaigned the bike. And the next year, I I think it was the next year. I forget now. But I think I hit, uh, like, you know, low 150s. And there's a definite difference between, you know, I know when I'm going like 120 or something, but uh, there's a difference visually. I mean, everything you can tell when you're doing 150, you know, it's, there's a different, uh, a definite difference in handling on the bike. Mm-hmm. Um, for instance, uh, at 130, I would just go through the, the timing, the timing lights, kill the motor with the kill switch, just let go of the throttle and sit up a bit to air brake, and it was no problem. Well, uh, around 150, I did that when I just let go of that throttle, and I went into a, a unloaded the front end, and it came up and just went you know quick speed wobble. It woke me up because if I was doing 160 instead of 150, that might have just freaking yeah. just set it lock to lock, and that would have been <laughs> that would have been it for that bike. Uh, you'd,
1: you'd have been a dirt ball on the uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think
0: I'd probably be fine. I feel like crashing out there isn't that big of a deal. But um, the bike would be, you know, probably annihilated. Yeah, I don't think there'd be anything to use on it. Um, But, yeah, so anyway, the the learning of the handling on stuff like that is fun. Uh, The other thing is it is one of those things where you're truly, for me, and I think this goes for a lot of racing or sports or sex or certain things where, like, totally in the moment, you know? Like, I'm not thinking about how my mortgage is due when I'm freaking running down the salt flats or whatever, you know, right. um, right. everything I'm, if I'm even thinking sometimes I'll realize I'm in like, you know, top gear, uh, balls out and realize like I didn't even realize I did anything. Like I don't remember, you know, you don't remember, you know, oh, I'm going to pull in the clutch. I'm going to shift blah, blah, blah. Um, right. it's just, you're so in the moment that uh, there is just nothing. It's just like a blank mind, which, uh, mm-hmm. is a big part of why I do it too. It's just an awesome escape. Like I don't think about, my daughter, who I love to do, I don't think I'm any of that. You know what I mean? There's, you can't, and uh, that's why I like it
1: too. So on top yeah, I've, of noticed, that. I've noticed, I've noticed, and I don't know if you'll agree or disagree with this, but I, um, I've i noticed, you know, in a couple of long rides that I've done, um, which I'm not that guy. I'm not, you know, not to name drop, but uh, I do. He is an acquaintance of mine and, and I consider him a friend, but uh, Rufio, you know, he's traveling all across the country, going yeah. back and forth multiple times. Um, I'm sure he he experiences this daily. But for me, on some of the longer trips I've taken, it takes a little while. You know, maybe for me, I think I would say a half an hour to 45 minutes, maybe nearing that hour where you're riding. And, you know, in the first part of that hour when you're riding your brain, you're just going through all this junk. It could be like when the mortgage is due, when, you know, the bike is due, when this thing is due, all the stresses of whatever. And then right around that hour mark, it seems like uh, I catch myself either singing more to like what's you know the headphones that are in my ear i'm singing to the songs or i'm just kind of listening to it grooving and all that stuff kind of fades away um what's that like for you to to have to go from thinking about all those things like getting to bonneville traveling to getting all your stuff there and then now you're on the bike and you got to go without thinking about something i mean does it just um, kind of disappear for you or do you really yeah to,
0: yeah it's it, like a uh, Every winter, I do major changes to the bike, rebuild the motors, changes to the drivetrain, whatever, Um, changes to the riding position, whatever. So usually, uh, probably always, my first run on the bike when it's been rebuilt, I'm nervous. Like I'm not scared, but I'm pretty fucking nervous Um, in a healthy way. Like I think you know, it's just a natural reaction. But when I am, and you know, you're in full leathers, uh, it's potentially, you know, 100 degrees out, you've been sitting in line, so you're hot, you know, there's stress, you'd be uncomfortable. Uh, when the starter, uh, he'll point and uh, he'll say, shield down, you know, flip your shield down your helmet, he point you, of course is clear, go. No joke, as soon as he points at me, like, that's game on, and it's just like, uh, uh, probably like a, a, my brain stem taking over. You know what I mean? It's just like yeah. that. Survival aspect where my, I'm not, you know, there's no conscious thought really happening there, so it just falls away. Like then I'm, I, no, nev- I mean that's it. There's no nervousness or anything, you know. That's just gone, and then after that, it's gone too. So it's just like that, like kind of that anticipation, and then um, after that, you know, I, I don't know. I just want to freaking r- race as much as possible <laughs> as quickly as possible. <laughs>
1: Well, I found too, it takes a while for years of the world of worries to come back after something like that. Like for me, you know, um, even taking a run down south a ways um, after that hour and then after the ride, usually it's like a day or two goes by before I start really feeling um, just the anxieties of life.
0: Sure. I think that's like, it sounds a little corny, but it is like meditation. Um, I ride bicycles a lot and I Mm -hmm. run a lot. And that's the same for me as riding motorcycles. Um, uh, oftentimes my best ideas are like in the middle of an hour long run or a multi-hour bicycle ride, you know, because mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, you're just kind of out of your normal environment as well. You know, you don't have a phone ringing or, you know, kids yelling or dogs barking or whatever. Right. Uh, well, it's what I have here. <laughs> and then, right. uh, but it just lets, I don't know, clear my head, you know?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, we're, where do you see, and I know you said you don't really have a plan, but mm. uh, because you, you, and you did claim this, so I'm going to put it back out there for you, yeah. because you're a business geek and uh, and you enjoy that aspect, I think geek is just synonymous for being passionate about something. I mean, there's obviously the social awkwardness that comes along with being a nerd or a geek, which, I mean, believe it or not, I was too. And I think if people knew what I did for a day job, they'd probably still think I was a geek. But um, that being said, um, what do you see as the future for lowbrow? I mean, this is, you built something from the ground up that I think, uh, ha, and it's just my opinion, has sustainability built into it. Um, I mean, you know, barring any like major national catastrophe, where do you see the future of lowbrow being?
0: Um, you know, it I'm pretty much kind of on par with what we've been doing. Like uh, five years ago, Lowbrow, yeah, probably five years ago. Lowbrow was myself, my brother, and Katie, uh, Kyle, my brother, and Katie, who are you mm-hmm. know still work uh, at Lowbrow. Um, and at that time, I would have told you, "Fuck no, I never want to. I never want a warehouse. I never want ten employees. You know, blah blah blah. Forget that." Uh, I actually visited W and W Motorcycles in Germany, which is a, a, a German company. They're a distributor uh, as well, some retail directs and such and they have like 50 employees. And I went there and it's such a freaking cool company with a good vibe, soulful. And they do amazing things like, uh, ride knuckleheads to the Arctic circle, ride shovelheads through Patagonia and South America. Like mm-hmm. they make money and spend it just having so much goddamn fun doing rad stuff. And like, I can totally appreciate that, that it's not about, um, it's not about making money. It's about, they take care of their employees. They have fun. They're passionate. That's all I want to do. Um, So that changed my viewpoint. So I was like, okay, well maybe some more employees or this or that isn't a bad idea. Um, and I also have very deep punk rock roots where, uh, like it's my knee jerk reaction is to say, fuck all that. And I'm, you know, potentially when I was 19, I was as close to living under a bridge as I was to starting a business for sure. So, uh, (laughs) awesome. But now I've got, you know, we've got, uh, 14 employees and I've had a warehouse for a few years and, and I love it. I mean, um, some of my, several of my uh, best friends are employees. Uh, my brother, my mother uh, is our accounting manager now. So I've got family involved, got friends uh, and other employees uh, who I've only met, you know, since I've hired them in recent years uh, are all friends. We're all close. Um, mm-hmm. Everyone kicks butt and is part of the team and it's not, it, it's definitely making lowbrow better for us to work at as well as for the customer and availability of parts. And it just ended up being fun. Like I thought it would be like this big line to toe, um, which in a way, I mean, I've got more stress of responsibility because I say, not I say what I know is I've got, you know, 14 employees who work and plan on working a little bit for a long time. Some of them have families, some of them have kids, right. you know, they live in houses and eat food and need to keep paying for that stuff. So for me, I have the responsibility of making sure they have that job and uh, that I help take care of them and their futures and all that. So there's more responsibility there, but um, you know that it, it's not really stressful, but it's something I'm aware of. You know, sure. so sure. It's, we're we're a real business, and I, I don't mean that condescendingly to any other companies, but we've got a bunch of employees. You know, there's a lot of people. There's a lot of people that branch out from those employees that depend on us uh and i I, and you know i want to keep doing that i want to provide a good job place to work you know i want them to get holiday bonuses and paid vacations and uh we pay for motorcycle endorsements and tests and safety courses if they want it and um you know 401ks and matching bonuses all all kinds of crap you know we spend a ton of money to make quality of life for employees uh as good as possible to me that's I mean, as important uh, their the personal lives is important to me as their work life, which is also very important. So, um, you know, that's that's a big a big change. Uh, essentially, I guess getting back to the original question, with the future would be, doing what we're doing. You know, uh, my main job and what I enjoy is product development. I like mm-hmm. literally doing a napkin sketch to a CAD or SolidWorks file to prototypes to. Uh, being at some little bike show in the middle of nowhere or some other country and seeing parts on a motorcycle that I personally designed. It's just it's very mm-hmm. fulfilling. It's my creative outlet, you know. Um, so basically I want to make more I want to make I want to make parts, you know, uh, I want to continue to do what we've done since the very beginning, which is be a spot to find parts uh in riding gear and apparel and stuff, but especially parts from brands worldwide, and we carry a ton of stuff. I mean, I think we have I don't know, over a couple hundred brands, including mm-hmm. you know, plenty of one-man shops operating out of a garage in many different countries in Europe and the U.S. and mm-hmm. elsewhere, um, and that's what we've kind of always done and uh, we'll continue to do. So I want to always be that source to find, you know, quality stuff uh, that's cool, um, you know, some of which, you know, we might only sell 12 a year or something, right. um, but it's, it's neat to uh, and fulfilling to be the source for that kind
1: of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, what I would say, like my impression of low brow is that uh, you, you've come up to be kind of that go-to place for not only, um, you know, as a distributor for, for other gear, but also as boutique stuff, you know, like you said, maybe there's someone that only makes 12 parts a year and, and they might be kind of costly, but you know, it's made in the USA and it's uh, and it's well-made and, and being that outlet for that or being that, um, I don't know, carrier, for lack of a better term, um, I think it's important, especially to a community that thrives on, um, you know, home-built stuff um, that likes to know that who they're working with, um, you know, not isn't just trying to make, you know, the Forbes 500. You know what I mean? Yeah, sure. So um, let me ask you this. When you come to a, a, a show, whether it's a small you know, little indie event uh, in the Midwest somewhere or overseas, or it's, you know, born free. How do you feel when you walk into a show? Do you feel like Tyler Malenke, uh, you know, lowbrow customs, or do you feel like no, um, no, socially, have, socially kind of awkward motorcycle oh, yeah. enthusiast? Okay.
0: Everyone, all, everyone who knows me makes fun of me because the way I feel is I got to get the fuck out of here right now. <laughs> like, I'm awesome. so uncomfortable in situations like that at all. Um, I'm way more apt to be like hiding behind a tree at one of our campouts. So yeah. <laughs> like, I can just fucking be quiet and alone. Uh, you know, I'm not the limelight guy. Uh, yeah. That's why it probably took two years to get this interview with me. Like, <laughs> uh, no. I just, I'm, you know, man, I'm just some fucking nerd who sells crap, <laughs> you know, t-shirts and and parts. And uh, yeah, I mean, it's just no big deal. So when I get to a show, like, uh, I don't know, I, it makes me nervous, you know, uh, because I'm, uh, I don't know. I'm an invert for sure. Uh, so I tend to, um, oftentimes it shows I'll but some couple beers will help, even though I almost never drink beer, uh, right. you know, helps loosen me up a little bit to talk and, and all that stuff. And it's not that I, I don't want to talk to, uh, you know, meet people and this and that. I'm just socially awkward.
1: So, you know, I think it's something that's, uh, I don't know. My wife and I talk about this a lot, actually, because she is the polar opposite of, I wouldn't say polar opposite. Maybe that's a little harsh, but she is the opposite of me in a lot of ways. One of the female population. And so it's, uh, you know, when we get along, we get along really well. And when we don't get along, it's like, it's like having, you know, ready to throw blows with another dude. Mm-hmm. So, and I'm sure there's many people that can, that can kind of uh, relate to that. But the reason why I'm saying that is not everybody is, you know, an extrovert, always on, like can't wait to go to the, you know, whatever the latest and greatest thing is and meet people. Um, I can handle that. My personality, I can go and be around a lot of people. Mind you, as I get older, only for a limited amount of time because then I come home and I'm exhausted. But um, but there are also the other side of that spectrum, introverted people who tend to be the idea, you know, the, the idea people, the makers, the creators, um, and not really the limelight, you know, folks. Um, but I guess I'm just kind of saying this more is, um, you know, when you meet somebody who might be your, your quote unquote, you know, chopper hero um, not to expect them to be something that they're not um, because they're just people, you know, they're people like you, like me. Sure. Um, and if, if you ever do get kind of a weird vibe from somebody, my philosophy in life is just, you know, don't hold them against them because, it's likely that they're, they're overwhelmed, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, I've gotten much, much, much better over the years from being in business too. Cause I, I mean, I've got to make phone calls, you know, I've got to talk to people. I've got to, you know, all that's so all gotten way better. I mean, there was a period in my life where I, I don't feel like I said many words like ever, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. uh, uh, yeah, I've gotten way better at it, but yeah, I, I tend to be, um, yeah, just kind of, nervous, I guess.
1: So. Awesome. Well, let me run through a couple questions. Uh, these are just going to be some random questions for you. Um, and I know the answer to this first one already, but dogs or cats?
0: Uh, dogs, I would say.
1: Okay. And I probably know the answer to the second one too. Harleys or Triumphs?
0: Uh, I would say Triumphs just because, uh, you know, Harleys are a little too popular to give them any more support. They're great and sure. all, but
1: <laughs> so, burgers or tacos? Tacos, fish tacos. And it, I was gonna say, what, what kind of tacos? Yeah. Good. Do they have any good fish taco places in Ohio?
0: uh There's yeah, there's some good Mexican food around here. Still, it's funny because we're pretty far north, and you go north of the border into Canada, and there's like no Mexican food. um yeah. I mean, there's some bad Mexican food around, here, but there's some good stuff, but not like. Obviously not comparable to uh, Southern California or Austin yeah. or you know yeah. stuff anywhere in the Southwest, of course. But,
1: but it is. so we know one one of the reasons why you travel often is for good yeah. fish tacos.
0: Yeah, <laughs> uh, motorcycles, eat tacos.
1: <laughs> right, exactly. Gosh, that should be the next. Uh, so, Bill, if you're watching this one, uh, this should be the next uh, EDR thing. <laughs> Ride yeah. motorcycles, eat that was, tacos.
0: <laughs> that was our uh, that was our, our joke. We went down to Texas for the the Gidea show. Okay. Yeah. March. Yeah Uh, because it was winter you know snow in Ohio we went down there we're riding motorcycles around going to different swimming holes hitting a different taco stand every two hours and it was can't beat riding motorcycles and eating tacos and going swimming so
1: not at all not at all there's not much I mean add some beer to that and you'd be fine and I'm I'm not a prolific beer drinker but I do enjoy a beverage and some tacos riding motorcycles um let's talk about something that maybe isn't a um a happy time in a lot of people's lives um and I know for me, um, and I, I think I can safely say this for a lot of people, it was more of a devastating time, but, um, I, I think lowbrow did something that kind of, uh, helped out well, I know it helped out. So tell us a little bit about, um, maybe what your thoughts are, how should I word this? Tell us maybe, um, what your what your feelings were behind uh, Larry Pierce's passing, and um, and kind of what you guys were able to do to help out, and I'm I'm saying this mostly for the benefit of those who um, didn't maybe get to know Larry personally, and also um, you know who as as quiet maybe as you wanted to keep it. Obviously, there there was something that you guys did to help out. So tell us a little bit about that.
0: Uh, I was in San Diego actually at the time. Uh, this Sunday morning, he uh, had passed away the night before, I woke up to a text from my brother, and he and it just said, "Fuck, dude, Larry's dead." And uh, I, you know, I was like, "What the fuck are you talking about?" I couldn't believe it. Uh, well, I mean, I just didn't—it didn't register as like a statement of fact or of Larry of Larry Pierce. You know, um, it, honestly, I all through that day I was kind of going like. You know, still thinking like maybe it wasn't true, like when right. I'm thinking it was something. So it was, it was crazy. I actually haven't really experienced that as uh, as an adult. Um, I guess I haven't known someone really close who's that I have really, you know, I've cared about that I've died since I was younger. Um, so I mean, I, I, yeah, we were just blown away. As I mean, knowing Larry and Ashley f- closely for years, that was a fucking. St- I mean, just tragic. I mean, especially when knows their relationship and how they were together. It was just like that's the worst part about it too, because he thought that how Ashley was doing, you know, and how she felt mm-hmm. about it, um, and was coping. Um, in any case, you know, there was like an outpouring of support, uh, pretty much right away from the motocross community. Larry was like the genuinely funniest, goofiest guy. I think of him like in Cincinnati, Ohio. We had. At the V Twin convention, it would be a bunch of guys, and we're you know Pat from Lead Sled and Larry and us and uh, a bunch of guys just um, at some club, you know, after the V Twin convention closed, uh, and, and Larry just going off dance, tearing up the dance floor, uh, <laughs> loving every minute of it to the worst pop songs possible and stuff. I mean, that's mm-hmm. how I imagine him. Um, we we sold or we got, you know garage company shirts and handlebars and, and some of their parts mm-hmm. and such. Uh, and we just decided to, and we printed their shirts for him. So um, I mean, we print the shirts in house at Lowbrow. So we just said, uh, Kyle, it was actually Kyle's idea. And then he uh, actually went through a friend, Billy, in Alabama, because we, you know, Ashley wasn't even talking to anyone. This was like two days later. Mm-hmm. Right. We decided to uh, print basically as many shirts as would sell and then just give that money to Ashley, the tough situation um, was just that they weren't married, you know, but they had a Mm -hmm. shared life together. So it was a, you know, it was a bad situation because um, you know, she lost him and then might have lost kind of her whole homestead and, you know, way of life, uh, you know, with their, their shared life, you know, because a lot of it legally was was in his name. And we thought that if Larry obviously was, if he could have known her plan, obviously he would, want her to have everything and, and to be able to continue their life how they had led it, you know as much as possible so anyway we uh, we just we printed shirts and just gave all the money to uh to ashley and her family to take care of the estate uh, larry's family and then just take care of kind of all the legal stuff and loose ends and help support them uh so you know, if, you know the last thing you want to worry about through something like that is like going to work too you know what i mean it's just super yep. rough so uh, it was insane, honestly, the amount of support the Motor Show community gave by buying a shirt. I mean, there was I, I think we sold, like, I don't know, I think it was like a couple thousand in like two days. <laughs> so I mean, it blew me away. It was probably uh, 10 or 15 times the uh, what I expected. We were going nuts uh, filling those orders, and uh, Ashley was, of course, so Uh, uh, you know appreciative I mean she couldn't she was blown away by everyone's support so um, for us it was honestly a very minor thing it was just having the uh, I don't know having the the, I guess audience being able to spread that word a bit and then having the operation in place meaning like our normal shipping and receiving and warehouse and all that stuff and t-shirt printing we had all the tools at our disposal to make that happen like quick and seamlessly Mm -hmm. and so we did you know so it wasn't it was the support of all the people who bought shirts, not, um, you know, not us in particular. Um, and I mean, I know there were people who were buying like 50 shirts and would say, don't actually send the shirts. I just want the money to go. To yeah. 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 And stuff like that. So, um, you know, so I don't know. It, it was, it was good to see that uh, support and, uh, in the never free of Larry Pierce and the ride for Larry Day and all the stuff that support that shows that, uh, uh, you know, he was appreciated. And I'm sure would have, freaking blown him away because he was yeah. very uh,
1: mild-mannered.
0: Well, I don't know that's not the right description. Not mild-mannered, but he was uh, – I-, I think he would have been embarrassed about about all the support,
1: honestly. I think he would have too. I, yeah. The first time I met him was at uh, the People's Champ uh, for – was a Born Free 4. Um, I think it was Born Free 4. Anyway, I met him at the People's Champ. Maybe it was Born Free 5. I can't remember. But I met him, and him and Ashley were at uh, Cook's Corner – and I remember walking through the crowd and I, you know, easy for me because I'm freaking Sasquatch going through the crowd. I can see over everybody. And I see, I see this little dude and uh, well, I say little dude, big stature, yeah. um, you know, shorter in uh, or I should say huge personality, shorter in stature, uh, Larry. And he turns to me in the midst of talking to a bunch of people and immediately like his eyes open up and he's like, oh, and his arms go out and he comes over and hugs me. And that I had had one interview with them, you know, via FaceTime. And um, I feel like I really got to know him through that interview and through the hour. I think it was an hour that we talked before and about 40 minutes or so after the interview. Um, But that, that, I guess my point is what he did is what everyone I've spoke to has said that he did for them. He, he really, when you were talking to him, he made you feel like you were the center of the universe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah.
1: And um, so I didn't get a chance to say this at the time uh, when all this was going down, but, you know, thank you to you uh, and, and the whole team. And obviously to everybody who stepped in and bought stuff uh, to help support. And because um, money obviously doesn't mean anything in the midst of losing somebody, but it does mean something in, the, you know, after all the the grieving in the morning has, has passed and it's starting to fade and you've got all those bills, like you said, in the legal, the legality of yeah. uh, someone passing. So um, just thank you. Thanks for doing the right thing.
0: Yeah, I appreciate it. Yes, um, I said it, was, it worked out really good, and it was just a lot of people that came together to help make that happen. So yeah. I'm glad. I mean, uh, I'm glad we can do stuff like that. Once all we, uh, you know, anything you can do when you have enough communication with people. There's enough, you know, uh, yeah. eyes or ears or whatever. It's great. Uh, I feel like you've yeah, to use that to make good things happen because yeah, you know, I mean wearing the motorcycles is saying exactly, uh, saving lives, you know? So whatever <laughs> good, whatever good we can get out. Uh, and now there's anything bad about it, but any, uh, positive things, support for charity, this and that we can do by, you know, kind of, uh, reaching out, um, for little donations in mm-hmm. that way. I think goes a long way, you know?
1: I agree. I agree. Um, I wanted to ask you one more thing kind of about lowbrow. Um, mm-hmm. uh, tell us about the lowbrow get down. Are you, Are you guys going to continue to do this uh, year over year?
0: Yeah, I think so. Uh, It's honestly one of my favorite events we do because it's just all fun and very little work involved. We do, uh, I honestly don't know if this is our fourth, fifth, or sixth. I'll go with the middle one. I I think (laughs) we missed it here somewhere, Uh, but it's usually one of those weekends that's so much fun, uh, but... Uh, if I went to church, I would need to go to church afterward and eat a salad and do some <laughs> yoga or do something to, you know, just to kind of like take care of my body after trashing it for a weekend. But we, uh, we invade Nelson's Ledger's quarry park, which is a private owned campground. I think it's a few hundred or 400 acres, uh, old rock quarry mm-hmm. that got, uh, that hit a fresh spring, I think in the sixties or so and flooded. And then it was abandoned, and it was like a biker and hippie hangout uh, you know, for a period in the 70s. Some point in the 80s, it became kind of a campground, and it's just been known as a really wild spot, um, just very free-spirited. And i have been, years ago, calling around to parks and stuff, to our campgrounds, saying, oh, you know, we're going to have 50 or 100 friends on motorcycles, uh, and we're trying to you know, find a spot to camp, and people would just hang up on me and stuff. So I called Nelson's Ledges, <laughs> yeah. where I camped since I was 18, on and off. And they were, I uh, said, yeah, you know, we're gonna have maybe a hundred friends out on motor. they was like, yeah, well, and you know, they just couldn't care less. So, oh, yeah. like, all right, perfect. Um, basically, they, you know, they let us do you know, whatever we want. Um, you can't swim at night, but aside from that, it's pretty much game on. Uh, it's awesome quarry, uh, cliff jumping, uh, sand beach. There's a little island in the middle. Uh, Beautiful woods. Just, the camping is awesome. There's a state park right next door. That's a uh, uh, sandstone cliffs called Nelson's ledges. You can go climb at, okay. and uh, it's just, a, it's a great weekend ride out, hang out. Uh, we got sponsored uh, by PBR, Gingling, Cleveland whiskey. So we had lots of beer and booze. We hand out uh, pizza hut gave us 48 pizzas this year or something. Uh, we usually put a bunch of money into a barbecue or some other meal and, uh, mm-hmm. and, and bands we had uh, this year was kind of, is going to be extremely hard to top. We had David Allen Coe <laughs> on Friday night and Blue Oyster Cult on Saturday. Um, and uh, it was just a blast. It was a good mix of people, you know, for the get down as well as, you know, hippies who kind of live there normally. And yeah. people who were there to see David <laughs> Allen Coe or Blue Oyster Cult, you know. Uh, so it was a great mix. And um, yeah, we're we'll, we'll definitely doing it again next year. We'll have to figure out uh, what bands we're gonna get that camp uh they actually Willie Nelson played there this summer as well. Willie Nelson would be an awesome one to try and get it all depends on
1: that would be amazing. And,
0: uh you know working with Nelson's Legends campground, they're real helpful. So we kind of split, you know, setting that kind of stuff up because they kind of draw on the regulars and we bring in a bunch of people. Uh, we had guys That's from awesome. uh Nevada, Wisconsin, Texas, all over Canada and all over the East Coast and Midwest. So we had Honestly, I have no idea. Maybe 500 to a thousand people or something. I don't even know. Uh, but it was, it was there was a lot and it was uh steady stream of bikes and you know good times.
1: I think um just a comment, you know, regarding uh get-togethers and stuff, you know, West Coast versus uh, Midwest or East Coast seems like and I know a lot of people look to the West Coast for some reason uh for kind of, you know, the 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 definitive shows, if you will. Um, and I, I feel like ever since I started looking at, um, you know, this community and inside this culture that while we might have a show, you know, once a year, uh, or two shows once a year, and they draw a lot of people that, um, it's my opinion. And again, I'm not, you know, I'm not saying this to hurt anybody's feelings, but it's my opinion that from the get go, East coast, Midwest rides or ride to type destinations, you know, campouts and things like that. I feel like I'm missing out. I really do. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, it seems like it has more of this homegrown. Uh, I know there's a lot of planning goes into it. It's not just, you know, Hey guys, let's take off. We're going to go meet at uh, this sure. Nelson campground on the weekend, but it feels like it's more of a homegrown uh, community type thing versus I think what you see on the West coast is, you know, a well planned out obviously. And um, a lot of people show up and a lot of good people, uh, people putting it on and such, but, you know, not the same as, like, um, you know, our friends from uh, show class doing the well, – and I say show class, but I know it's show class and, and the death science guys doing the um, the North Carolina, you know, run down the coast and stuff. Uh, right. and, and just everything, the gypsy run, all that stuff.
0: Yeah. Um, I think uh, have come going to California a lot and being involved in a lot of shows out there, uh, a big part of it is just, like, the bureaucracy of California. You know, like, yeah. I mean, we do that – Party, you know, we have a thousand people show up. There's no cops show up. You know what I mean? Right. There's no, there's no permits involved. We, don't, we just do it. Uh, we just did Fuel Cleveland, in mm-hmm. the first one in May in downtown Cleveland. You know, four blocks, maybe, man, eh, maybe six blocks east of City Hall in downtown, um, and had just a shit ton of people. Uh, you know. The streets were full, freaking blocking the streets, people doing wheelies and surfing bikes and <laughs> everything else. And, you know, I mean, there were cops there and I, you know, introduced myself. Say, hey, you know, it's my bad. Who do you think? Let me know. And they were just like, well, hey, we're just looking at bikes. You know, there's just, just such a shit. <laughs> now that doesn't fly everywhere. But in right. Cleveland there, that works, you know. Uh, there, they just would not happen in so many places, you know, yeah. uh, there we just, we had a, a buddy who uh, lives in a warehouse that we could use the warehouse for free, you know, and, uh, just have a bunch of, you know, bikes come and photographers show up and show some stuff. And, um, I actually started filling out permit stuff for that and it was like 40 pages long. So I threw it in the trash and went, screw it. You know, I'll just do it. And yeah, there's awesome. no, yeah, there no, no problem. Um, and when it comes to just other things like that, like rides uh, and shows and events around the East Coast and Midwest, I think there's just there's just less people in most cases. It's less dense, that is. So there's just more places to do it. I mean, honestly, if we didn't do the get down at Nelson's Ledges, I mean, I don't know, Lowbrow's shop is on 22 acres of land. You know, we can just do a freaking party there. You know, there's just a lot of things like you don't have 22 acres of land with your warehouse in Southern California. Right, you know, right. So. Yeah. I mean, there's just a lot more options, you
1: know. One major reason why I'm looking personally to get the heck out of California. Yeah. But, there's, uh, I
0: mean, like every pros and cons, like everywhere else. Yeah. yeah. We have a big, 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 big con, but uh, cheap cheap living is a big plus.
1: And see, I think most people in California, we, we sacrifice uh, the the fiscal irresponsibility to live here because it's ridiculously expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for you know, well, that great red weather, we can ride year round. Except for uh, today and the last uh, couple of days, it's been raining on and off. But you know, it's no,
0: sympathy. no sympathy for that. What's <laughs> that?
1: We'll, we'll yeah, no sympathy at all. No I sympathy know for rain, right, man. <laughs> <laughs> you guys, I, I know. You know, uh Pacific Northwest, all across the top, virtually in Midwest and out in the East Coast, it's like winter time comes, and you know, most guys would say average of like four months with no no riding. Right. Oh
0: yeah, for sure. I'm. Yeah, I. uh, I remember I got out this this last January one day, and it was about twenty degrees Fahrenheit. You know, but the roads were dry and clear. Uh, But it's you know there's a foot of snow on the ground. Uh, Went for a probably fifteen or twenty minute ride, and then couldn't get into my garage because my hands wouldn't work to turn the key. (laughs) Uh, But it was it was so much fun. With those miserable conditions, I was just so excited for spring. You know? But uh, yeah, typically I mean I'll go months without riding a motorcycle, at least in Ohio, if I'm lucky enough to go to the West Coast or something, and either uh, sometimes I have a bike sitting out there from like when we do EDR or Born Free or something, uh, or borrow a bike or borrow a bike, you know, and get a little get a little bit of riding. But it's not like the normal day to day thing. So, yeah. you know.
1: Well, let's, um, I want to ask you a couple of questions, maybe just to, to close off the interview and, and sure. I, I moved away from these questions for a little while and, uh, I, I don't know, I'm just going to dump them out here and see what you think. Sure. Um, what is the, the hardest or most difficult situation that you have ever found yourself in? Um, and it could be anything. I mean, you know, I've had people comment from, uh, you know, a death of their, their parent to, um, divorce and things like that. But what's, what's kind of the worst situation you've ever found yourself in and, and how did you get through that?
0: Uh, mine, it's not bad now at all, but at the time it was hard, uh, which I had a big shakeup in my life uh, four years ago or so, uh, maybe four and a half. Um, I was uh, married and uh, my daughter with the time was like a year and a half. And uh, my ex-wife, like totally to me out of the blue, was just kind of like, I'm moving out, I'm done. And uh, basically more or less, like this is a shorter version because it took a year of of me trying to save stuff and her living as a single woman basically. But um, basically she split and uh, I've been a full-time single dad since then, raising my daughter. Um, And it, it was hard at that time, you know. Now I'm so glad. Uh, I'm so glad I'm divorced and things worked out the way they, yeah. they did. Uh, and it, I've been very happy for years, but there was a, a definitely like a year or more that was really rough. Um, that actually were some of the most exciting years for lowbrow, like getting our current building and all kinds of stuff that I just honestly didn't really, I mean, it happened. So I was working at it, but I just didn't really care. You know, I was just like, yeah, fucking bummed. Um, so that, that was hard at the time, but like I said, I'm totally fine and happy with how things worked out, uh, and I wouldn't change anything, honestly, um, because I'm so happy with my life today that mm-hmm. I wouldn't disrupt anything because I do not want to change it, you know? <laughs> I'm so happy with my family life and my home life and all that. So um, that would be the hardest thing, and it just fucking sucked and was worrisome for multiple reasons, including the business, you know, because it mm-hmm. could have freaking ended my company, you know, so, um, the divorce, you know, so right. luckily you didn't, that, that's been the roughest thing I've personally gone through and things mm-hmm. pertaining to that, you know, just sure. all the city stuff. So,
1: well, what was, um, you know, on the, on the upside of that, what, what's the best thing that, that you've ever experienced in life?
0: Uh, I cliche, but my daughter is like, <laughs> yeah, you know? uh, a cliche for a reason. Cause I mean, I love kids. I love, I'm a family man. Um, that's my deal. I want more kids. I love just that regular stuff, man. You know what I mean? Like, just my little girl getting off the school bus. I love making dinner and hanging out. Uh, I love the weekends when we don't have to get out of bed and watch cartoons and all that. Stuff. So that's the best thing for me. That's why I would change. That's one of the reasons I would change nothing. Because despite the shitty things that kind of, you know, were part of having my daughter, as far as the, my, ex, you know, my marriage-flying partner, all that crap, um, you know, it's totally worth it. So, yeah.
1: you know. I, I can understand that. I really can. What, um, piece of advice for all those people out there who are entrepreneurial, uh, they have the passion, um, they have the drive to want to put something together or, or make something happen, um, but, uh, you know, don't have the experience or haven't experienced it before. Uh, what would you encourage them with?
0: Um, a couple things. One would be focus on one thing. I've seen so many people who could have done something greater, made one of their endeavors uh, a big success, but uh, because they've got six things going on, they've got you know they're they're a singer in a band and they've got a freaking normal job and they're trying to build bikes and they're trying to fill in the blank. Like you're never going to be very likely you're not going to be great at any one of those things. So stop all the other bullshit man up and or woman up and just fucking do it and focus. Uh, the other thing I would say is, uh, I've gotten a lot of knowledge and, um, saved myself much time and headaches and heartache with, uh, mentorship, you know, basically just through my life. And it just happened naturally since I was probably my late teens. But, um, someone typically older than me uh not always the case though who i admire who's got a skill set or has done something that i want to do mm-hmm. and it's actually you know just being friends with them you know uh, asking questions asking for support asking for points of view being open to what they have to say um you know not having to figure out every damn thing for yourself so for me like right. i've got a, a few people close friends who i also consider mentors um and that's kind of always ongoing, you know, it seems like I kind of add to that as I get older or I'm like kind of have questions in a different area or whatever, you know, uh, I'm always just looking for uh, that relationship. And I think it goes both ways too, you know, mm-hmm. both people uh, really get some, something out of it. So uh, that would be my other piece of advice or so something that's worked for me.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you, Tyler. I really appreciate your time, man. And I, you know, sure. like I said, I, I'm stoked that we finally got to sit down and talk. Uh, yeah, you know, we, we, have, we played tag for the last couple of years and uh, I know it's not because you don't like me. Not, not at, <laughs> at, least I, at least I think it is. <laughs> but yeah, thanks, thanks for uh, spending some time with us and, and um, sharing your wisdom and your life. And um, I, I wish you the best, uh, you know, in the future. And I, I, think, I think you're doing some good things, man.
0: Cool. Thanks, Mike. I'll see you, uh, I'm sure, hopefully, at some point. Hopefully, this winter, I'll see you in California. So that means I won't be in Ohio at some point, hopefully. Yeah.
1: Come enjoy some warm weather. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Tyler. You take care, man. Uh,
0: thanks, Mike.